The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. This was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers back here On my left, by the Kids Zone sign, if it's your child's first time in Children's Church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Thanks, Michael. Uh, Well, uh, as Jared is away in July, uh, we're excited for him to be away. Um, Not because he's not here, but because he's where he is and resting and taking a month uh, to be with his family. Uh, we will have uh, different people and different voices sharing and preaching. And so this morning, uh, we have Steve Perkins, who's going to share with us on the passage that was just read. Uh, he's a friend of us and uh, a tender here. And so uh, please welcome Steve as he comes and shares God's word. Thank you, Ben. And remember, Jared asked us to pray for patience for him last week, so let's keep him in prayer as he's with his family and recuperating from ministry. Greeting, as Ben said, my name is Steve Perkins and I've got relatives here on the session and and a good friend of the staff. I love this church and I've been attending since God took my wife home two years ago. This passage of Galatians is probably one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. Remember Paul in Acts 13 and 14 on his first missionary journey had passed through South Galatia and towns like Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, towns where he encountered the fierce opposition of the Jews and yet God used him to bring many people to faith and little churches were springing up and they were now under attack because believers came with a different message, a different gospel. And they were in danger, and Paul was fierce in his defense of the truth and his love for them. He wants very much for them not to fall prey to the message that if you have Christ, you need to add other things to it in order to really be saved. In this case, it was circumcision, but many other things are added to him And Paul was telling them and telling us through them, if you add anything to Christ, you risk losing Christ himself. He alone is sufficient for our salvation. So that orientation reminder 
brings us at last to chapter 5. And chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is teaching the Galatians about who they are. And two lists that are in there that we'll look at in just a second. A list of the works of the flesh, which comes first. And then finally, the list of the fruit of the Spirit. And our task today is to look at the very middle one. John Stott, in his wonderful commentary on Galatians, says that they fall neatly into three triads, or three groups of three. Love, joy, peace, they are representative of our relationship now to God, reconciled to Him. Patience, kindness, and goodness, the fruit of the Spirit as we relate horizontally to people around us. And then faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These become, by His grace, our essential selves, our true voice. So the Holy Spirit, in this passage, it says the fruit of the Spirit. If you can imagine, the Holy Spirit is like a brilliant white light. And God's people are around Him like prisms. Prisms break up the light into its beautiful component colors. And the fruit of the Spirit in me and in you and in His church is broken up and we see these different, as we twist it around a little bit, we see these different attributes, these different realities in the heart of human beings, just like me and just like you. So our task today, as we talk about kindness, the very middle one in the second three, is to be aware, aware of what it really is, and then aware of who we really are, and then to see how God awakens us to kindness how he awakens us from our slumber, how we become by his grace like him in kindness. We really do need his help. So would you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Always, Father, we need your spirit to teach our hearts. Not because we doubt it is the truth, but because we are so slow just like the disciples, to believe all that you've taught us and teach us. Today, we want to come. We want to see with eyes that are clear and in focus the loving kindness of our God and then the surety of his grace to make us like him, to imitate him. So, Lord, send your spirit. Please defeat anything I say that leads people astray. But through our time together and through your word, May we see you and become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. An author I admire, a writer, David Foster Wallace, was invited to give the commencement address at Kenyon College in Ohio, May 2005. And uh, you can find a transcript of his address online if you ever are interested. Um, he said some things that I think no commencement speaker ever really ever said before. I admire his grit and his honesty. And he began his commencement address with this little parable-ish story, he said. He talked about two little fish, young bucks, swimming along in the water. And an older fish came up behind them and then said, Morning, boys. How's the water? And they swam on. Silence. After a while, one turned and looked at the other and he said, what in the world is water? And he goes on in his commencement address to say that the point of the story was merely that the most obvious and important realities are very often the hardest to see 
and to hear. And if you're like me, it's that way with kindness. So let's first try to understand clearly what kindness is. What does Paul mean by this word Christasos in Greek, kindness? Well, maybe we can understand it best by seeing a rescue. May 2022, this last May, Reuters News Service reported on a rescue off the shore of the island of Mallorca in Spain. About three miles offshore, a ship noticed what appeared to be a whale in distress. And so the owners of the ship called. They called on shore to the Palma de Mallorca Aquarium Marine Rescue Center. And they got on the phone with a marine biologist, Gigi Torres. They told her what they found and gave her the location. And she grabbed some friends and their diving gear and boats and they motored out to where the location of the whale was. And what they found gave them great dismay. They found a 12 meter long female humpback whale, hopefully entangled in a drift net. Now, unless you're a fisherman, a drift net may not mean anything to you. But fishermen call it the wall of death because it encaptures and kills so much marine life. And this whale had somehow gotten entangled in this net, so much so that she couldn't open her mouth. She couldn't feed and she was growing weak. That wasn't so bad that she couldn't rise to the surface and breathe, but she was clearly in distress. Well, the people from the Marine Rescue Center tried to come alongside her and the boat, but they couldn't get to her. They couldn't help her. So they put on their scuba gear and they dove in for divers, including the marine biologist. And at first, when they entered the water and approached the whale, she blew lots of bubbles as though to hide or to try to get away from them. But then somehow she realized or seemed to realize that they were there to help her and she calmed down. And they took out their tools and they began at her mouth, cutting away the net that bound her so tightly. And they worked for 45 minutes to finally cut that drift net away enough to the point where she could wriggle herself and get free. They all expected that she would just swim off quickly. But to their surprise, she just tarried. She just waited in the water with the four divers as though to say, thank you. Thank you for saving my life. Slowly then she swam away to freedom and the marine biologist said this was the greatest birthday present of my life to free this whale. Here, maybe this way, we can see what kindness really is. First, it's to see, to really see, without reference to ourselves, the other out there. The divers tried to see the whale. They couldn't until they got into the water. They really saw her then and her need. Secondly, once we see, once we really see, to have compassion. They clearly had compassion for this animal. They wanted to do what they could to free her. And then kindness is a verb of action. They had to act. It took 45 minutes of hard work to free her. And so we see kindness is really these three components at work. First, to see the other, the one outside of us really see them and acknowledge who they are really. And then to feel compassion for what they need, small or great. And then to act, to do what you can to meet that need, small or large. 
Well, let's test. Let's test our understanding of, of kindness. Let's test it with another rescue. You know about this one very well. Mark chapter 2, Jesus Christ is teaching in Galilee. He comes and stays for a while in Capernaum. His fame is already spreading like wildfire. He has miraculously healed many people. His teaching is like no other teaching they've ever heard. They're thronging to him, coming in from the countryside. And where, he's, where he is in the house in Capernaum, they are crushing to hear him, to be around him. And you remember four men brought their friend, a paralyzed man on a pallet, but they couldn't get there. The crowd was too tight, too crushed. So they did something shocking. They opened the roof and they let him down. They let him down and Mark says Jesus saw. Not only the man, but he saw their faith. He saw that they believed that not only had he had he the power to cure this man, but he had the compassion. They had confidence in his heart of love and kindness. And then as that story progresses, we are all shocked. Everyone there, and we too as we listen in. For Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven you. What? Nobody expected that. And the scribes that were sitting there already in their minds and hearts were bristling. Wait a minute. No human being can say that. You have to be God to say that. Because every sin, everywhere by anybody committed is ultimately a sin against him. To forgive sins is to say, Jesus is saying, I am God. And of course he answers their thoughts and in that application, what we see is the greatest kindness, kindness to the nth degree. Because Jesus explains the greatest need that man had and everyone there and all of us who listen in is for that forgiveness of sins. Who's going to take away our offenses to God, our breaking of his law, our refusing to listen to him, our wishing he was not around our rejection of the truth. Who? If it's not him, there is no hope. And so Jesus passionately, clearly proclaims kindness. I forgive their sins. And our greatest need is met there as well. So our definition of kindness holds up. I think it holds up. I think it helps us to see and helps us to want to be that way ourselves. But awareness, not only of kindness, but of ourselves as well. We're just like those two little fish swimming in the water. We don't know what water is, but we don't have a clear view of ourselves either. <clears throat> and that's where the passage that Mike read for us comes into play. Listen to it again, not because you forgot, but because it's important to hear these words. Particularly, I want your help. I want you to listen to what the Jews, with a capital J, say and then I want you to think with me about what it means, what they say. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews, with a capital J, gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? 
If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. What do you think? Do you think they are being honest? Do you think they are really asking? Do you think they're genuinely curious about who he is? Is that what you think? I think if you listen to what Jesus says, you will get the right idea. Jesus said, I told you that the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. No, they were being disingenuous. What they were really saying was, we want to hear it out of your own mouth. We want you to confess that you are the Christ so that we may condemn you from your own testimony. They've been witnessing. They know about his deeds. They were there. Many of them were there in Mark chapter 2. They heard what Jesus said and watched him heal. They've seen miracle after miracle. The signs, the truth, the reality of his person, of his being, is like no other human being ever in history. This record of the gospel is unique in all of literature and in all of human history. Here we have professedly the God who is one, who is all, who created everything, who is almighty. Here in Jesus Christ, he's showing us in the most visible and powerful possible ways what he is like. He's not a force. He's not living in little microscopic creatures that's got a dark side and a light side. All of that bunk about God has become part of our culture. No, the one true living God has come among us and lived in front of us. And in everything he said and did, there was no happenstance, no chance. Everything was designed and committed to explain, this is who I am. This is who God really is. These Pharisees are being disingenuous altogether. Where does that come from? What is that like? Maybe through them we begin to see a lens into our own heart. At least I found it in mine. Where does this come from? Where do these works of the flesh come from? Well, the Pharisees kind of show us, don't they? They are really saying to Jesus, we will be the judge. We will determine if you're real or not. We will say whether it's valid or not, your claims. We will judge. And not only will we judge, we will be the jury and we will decide, and then we will be the executioner. You see that in verse 31. When it became really clear what Jesus was saying, I and the Father are one, they pick up stones to slay him, to stone him. They don't because his hour has not yet come. But where does that come from? Where does that monstrous unbelief, that darkness of mind, that deliberate putting the lie to everything that they've said and heard and watched, well, it comes from the big lie that was told in the garden. The big father of liars told the gargantuan lie that we've all believed. That you can be as God. You can decide. You can pass judgment on God and his works. You can decide whether you will live that way or not. You will be the captain of your own soul. You will be in charge of you. And that is what we believed. And out of that has come endless sin and misery in our lives and in the whole human race. 
Wallace writes again in his address, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realist, most vivid and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. And for my own life, I have to say, you're right. You're right, David. You're right. And then if we want another vote, we can hear Paul, the converted Pharisee in Titus 3, say this. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is the default, me. You know what default is, right? You're writing a program and you have an if statement with several options. You have to tell the program or the computer what to do and anything is chosen. You also have to decide what happens if nothing is picked, if nothing is done. What is the default? And scripture clear is clear. We can't be helped until we are aware of our default. Are you? Does this feel too harsh, too hard? Well, it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story because Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Inside the prison of my heart and mind that all of its bores and locks are inside. All of the chains that batten it down that keep me inside in a dark, airless place where I can condemn everybody else and judge everybody else and keep myself sacred. Huh. There inside of that prison, God himself sends a shaft of light. Have you ever had an experience from your early childhood that stuck with you and you remember it? Um, there was a fellow first grader, I remember. You know, first grade is when you really begin to learn how to argue. You are fighting about whose dad is the greatest, blah, blah, blah. Who's the strongest on the playground? Who's the smartest in class? All this competition starts to really ramp up when you're in first grade and on. And I had a companion in first grade that was particularly infuriating. We were having a disagreement, and when I wanted to say something to him, he would do this very infuriating thing. He would put his hands over his ears. Then he would squinch up his eyes. And then he would go, la, 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 la. And he wouldn't stop until I walked away. He didn't just do it to me. He did it to everybody. What do you do with a guy like that? There's no dialogue. There's, there's no way to talk to him. And as I was thinking about this and our default, I was thinking, that's the way I've been to God. All the evidence that is around me and within me of his glory, of his greatness, and I've been shutting my ears and my squinching my eyes and blah, 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 blah. Don't talk to me. I don't want to know. I don't want to be accountable to you. But in his kindness, he begins to awaken me, and he did. 
It's like he gently, without crushing me, reaches in. He grabs my hands and pulls them away. Gently opens my eyes. Touches my lips. He says, be still. Know that I am God. And he asks a question. What do you have, Steve, that you have not received? What? Your life? I made it. Your body? It's my creation. Your time? I was there before time. I own time. All the gifts you enjoy, the wonders of human life, awareness, language, learning and accomplishment, all of it I created and gave you. All the wonderful relationships in your life, they come from me, the God of relationship, everything. What, Steve, do you have that you've not received? And for the first time, I'm speechless. It's true. Behind, before, ahead, underneath, God. I live and move and have my being in him. He begins to make me aware of him. And once that first shaft of light comes into my heart and mind, all the bars get unlocked and the locks are loosened and the chains fall off and I see more and more and more. And for the first time in my existence, I'm enabled to say to God, thank you. Thank you. I worship you. We become in his kindness aware of God our creator. But then, in an even more wonderful way, we become aware of Jesus our shepherd. Okay, another little test for you. I'm going to quote some scripture and you have to tell me where it is, okay? It's not going to be hard, I promise. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Where is that in scripture? Somebody, somebody say it. Psalm 23. Have you ever thought about the fact that we can't really access the comfort in that psalm until we first say, I'm a sheep. <laughs> what do you know about sheep? Sheep can't thrive on their own. Sheep never become feral. Sheep have no defenses against predators. Sheep are so stupid, they often eat the wrong food and can't get good water and they drown. Sheep are helpless without a shepherd. And here, David invites us to come with him to say to Jesus, the great shepherd, I'm a sheep. Lead me. I need you. Let me hear your voice. Let me follow you and let me have what you give to your sheep, eternal life. We hear his voice for the first time. Jesus said, I, I know them. They hear my voice. What is the voice of Jesus? Well, we know what ours sounds like. Our voice is a lying voice. It tells us the untruth about all kinds of things, everything. Myself, God, other people. Every, I judge all the time. I make mistakes. I, I have contempt for other people, sometimes even the very closest to me. 
And I wound with words and I hurt with actions. But Jesus' voice is altogether the opposite. It's the voice of authority. The same voice who said to the storm, peace, be still, and it stopped. The same voice who said to the flock of demons within that man and sent them into the pigs to drown in the sea. The same voice that said to the little girl, Talitha kum, sweetheart, arise. Voice of power. Not only the voice of power, but the voice of truth. The voice who's never deceived, never leads astray, who answers questions, who reveals the one true living God and how we may know him and love him and follow him. The voice who teaches us the reality of life and death. The voice of love. And by his grace, I begin to do something I would never have imagined. I begin to say with the psalmists, Lord, I have come to love your law. I see what it is. It's beautiful. It's the description of a human being, a creature that you have made, beginning to reflect back to you the kindness and the love of what you really are. I love your law, Lord. I want to keep it. And so we follow him. And where does he lead us? Psalm 23c. He leads us in paths of righteousness. And I see then, I begin to understand that the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 are really a description of the journey of a human being that's becoming alive, of hearing his voice and following him. I find that I have nothing, nothing but demerit before him, that I'm poor in spirit. And he says to me, you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But Lord, I mourn. All my life has been spent disobeying you, disrespecting you, treason against you. I mourn, I'm sorry, my heart is broken for this. He says, good, because the mourn, the ones who mourn shall be comforted. I begin to learn meekness. Meekness means the fight for my own honor, my own glory, my own importance is finally dying away. That I become less and less important in my own eyes. And Jesus says, good, the meek shall inherit the earth. I find, Lord, a new hunger in me. I find a new desire in me. I want to be righteous like you. I, I want to be loving kindness like you. And he says, good, because all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. In following him, I find my true self and my forever life. Paul wants the Galatians to know that. And then he's giving them all the tools to understand finally this, becoming kind. After Paul explains all the beautiful nine fruit, fruit well, I want to say fruits, but it's singular, all the fruit of the Spirit. He goes on at the end of that passage to say this, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What? His will is for us to become kind like him. But in order for that to happen, we have to act. And what do we do? What does he describe? We crucify. We crucify. 
the old voice, the old man. We take up the hammer and the nails and we hammer it to the cross. Now you know the cross was the Roman instrument of execution. Nothing ever comes down from the cross alive. But it takes a while to die. The agony is unspeakable. Our Lord knows this. But after we nail it up there, it's not dead yet. It's still in us. It's still speaking, still whining, still recommending. Don't ignore her. She's not worth your time. Hurt him. Hurt him with your words and your revenge. You deserve it. Or the old L'Oreal commercial, I'm worth it. And Paul is saying, you've done it. You've already done it. Decisively, once and for all, you have nailed it up there, but don't listen to it. Because not only is there crucifixion, there has to be choice. Until we lay these bodies down, that voice will still whisper to us. And we have to choose. We have to be aware. We have to be discerning. We have to listen to C.S. Lewis in the Mere Christianity, when he talks about charity or love, and he says, you know what, the thing, the great secret that Christians know is that you don't wait until you feel something to do it. It's actually just exactly the opposite. The command of God comes to be kind, to love. And what do you do? Okay. You don't feel like it at first, but you look at the other out there. You really see them. You take time to ask, what's going on? What do they really need? How can I help? And sometimes the crucible for that is for the people very closest to us. Spouses, children, family. Some of the worst and ugliest examples of the flesh are the broken relationships between people who are close. It's to them first that this kindness must come. It's to them that we ask, who are they? What do they need? How can I help? What can I say? What can I do? What need can I meet to show how much I value them? And so this becoming kind requires us to choose, to make it a habit, to look, to see, to really see. And then don't wait for compassion. What need is there that God has given you the ability to fill? Do it. Simply do it. And C.S. Lewis says the most amazing thing happens. We find that we begin to love them. We find that we begin to really care. The great secret is we do it first. And then kindness really begins to happen. I want to bring it to a close by taking up a song, a psalm from the Old Testament. Psalm 136 in which we hear this word over and over, the word chesed in Hebrew. I had to say it right, you know, I had to get the little in there. Psalm 136 begins with these three words. Please don't think I'm going to read the whole thing to you. I'm not, it's 26 verses, too long. But it is critical that we understand it because it's the great why, God's great why. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. I'm gonna change it slightly. The older English versions, everybody struggles to translate the chesed word. It's so rich and full and beautiful. 
the English Standard Version that we use is his steadfast love because it has that idea of it never quitting, never giving up. And that's true and real. The older versions called it loving kindness. They use two English words to put together. His loving kindness endures forever. So I'm going to say it that way now. Give thanks to the God of gods for his loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love or his loving kindness endures forever. And then verses 4 through 9, he talks about God's great acts of creation. And after every affirmation, every statement, he says, his loving kindness endures forever. And then starting at verse 10 and on down, he's talking about covenant, God's great redemptive acts, releasing Israel from Egypt and taking them, rescuing them, making them his own and defeating the kings before them and giving them the land and over and over. The psalmist is reciting God's great covenant acts of redemption and after every one he says, what does he say? His loving kindness endures forever. The psalm ends with this word. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his loving kindness endures forever. But now there's an opportunity for us to finish it. You and me. Because when the psalmist wrote the greatest acts of redemption were yet to be, now we can say, God, in the fullness of time, sent forth his son, made of a woman, made of, under the law to redeem those under the law. His loving kindness endures forever. This one who was the word, who was God and is God, out of whom all creation came, this one became flesh. His loving kindness endures forever. He dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. His loving kindness endures forever. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. His loving kindness endures forever. And now, here's the rub. What about your story and mine? Can you add more, another stanza to this beautiful song? In process of time, he made me hear his voice. His loving kindness endures forever. I was given life to follow him, desires for him and after him. His loving kindness endures forever. I love his law. I want to grow in likeness to him. His loving kindness endures forever. He has given me now and forevermore life with him. His loving kindness endures forever. Is that your stanza? Is that the end of your story? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 32 through 51 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Let's pray. It's staggering, Father, to see your beauty. Would you never let us again not see it? But by your grace to grow, to bring you glory because we become like you, kind, because we are beloved children. In Jesus' name, amen. Not see it, but by your grace to grow, to bring you glory because we become like you.
kind because we are beloved children. In Jesus' name, amen.